Hello, and welcome to the Pages and Popcorn Podcast. The podcast where we, Jennifer and... Kalia. Two book nerds talk about movies based on books as well as the original source material. Two warnings. This podcast uses barnyard language. Why limit ourselves to only nice words? Some things warrant not-so-nice words. Also, spoiler warning. We will be talking about the endings of both book and movie, so prepare yourself. Okay. Let's get into it. It's the Pages of Popcorns Podcast. Special guest. It's the Pages of Popcorns Podcast. Special guest. gonna talk, so you better damn well listen. Hello and welcome to this episode of Pages and Popcorn Podcast. I am so excited about today's episode and I'm super excited because joining me again for, I, I, I've decided to not count anymore because it's just silly at this point, is Leah and she is here to talk with me about Howl's Moving Castle and there's a great story of why we picked this and how and all of that stuff how. <laughs> Anyways, I'm very excited, but real quick before that, just a very quick reminder that you can find the show notes and the links. And let me tell you, there is something very special that I'm going to link to in the show notes, which are on the blog post for this episode. It, I, You have to go see it. Like, even if you're not a normal person who goes and looks at them, I mean, I guess you're all normal people or not normal. My point is, even if you don't normally go and look at the links, and the sources that I painstakingly create for you. You should do it today or whenever because there is something really special for this episode in there. Okay, so there's that. It is at kmmamedia.com. There's a Pages and Popcorn link. You just click on it. All the shows, all the back catalog. You can listen to the earlier episodes with Leah. All, this is like episode 68, I think now. Like There's a lot of episodes to listen to. And you can find out all the information, which is really, really great. So kmmamedia.com. Also, there'll be a link there to the store. I think at this point, you can still order things for Christmas. So if you want a hoodie that says, but did you read the book? This is your chance to get it. There's also some pages and popcorn stickers. And there's a there's a couple of mugs. They, there was a t-shirt that said my favorite happy and my happy endings are to be continued or something along those lines, but they took it down. So I have to recreate that one. So if you don't see it right away, check back. Okay. Anyways, that is where it is. You can also find me, of course, on social media, Facebook, and technically on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok. I'm in all the places. You know my name. It's all there. Whatever. Okay, let's get into this episode because I'm super excited. Woo! Me too. (laughs) Yes. Okay, so before I even do the recap, I had vaguely heard that there was this movie called Howl's Moving Castle, which if you don't know the book and you don't know the movie sounds. Okay. You know what, you know what, you know what is here in California, Leah is Hertz, Hearst Hearst Castle. Castle. Yes. Okay. I've never been to Hearst Castle, but I know it's, it's beautiful. It's like a thing. There are like apparently zebras or flamingos and lots of fun rooms. And it's it's known as La Roche. Yes. Okay. So that is a thing that exists that I've never gone to. And then there's Howl's Moving Castle. And in my head, I was like, oh, there's some anime about William Randall Hearst 
I don't know. That does not sound like something <laughs> I'm into. <laughs> I love it. So, okay. And then Leah was at one point, I was saying, I need books for my daughter to read because she is a very voracious reader. She loves to read. She's reading at a higher grade level, but she needs books that are still fun and at her maturity level because she is only nine. She doesn't want like lots of romance. She doesn't want lots of, you know, gore, like, you know, whatever. Anyways, and Leah was like, oh, you should, she should read this author. Diana Wynne-Jones. Yes, Diana Wynne-Jones. Okay, and I was like, okay, that I've never heard of this author, but okay, and I wrote it down. And then I looked it up and it was like Howl's Moving Castle. And I was like, wait a minute, that's like a, is that like an anime? So is Leah trying to sneakily get me into reading manga or something? <laughs> like, this is not what I signed up for. So I challenged her and she was like, no, 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 no. It's a British lady. It's a book. It's really good. And then, yeah, they made it into a movie. Hey, you should read it. And maybe we could do a podcast episode. You know, the first time you invited me to be on your podcast, you told me to think about something that was really meaningful to me, like my childhood or, you know, that throughout my life that would just be me and representative of me. Right. And I was like, well, that's, a surefire recipe to make someone's head draw complete blank. Thank you so much. You've already done the last unicorn. That's the only thing I could think of. I don't know why this didn't occur to me because it's the marriage between young adult fantasy speculative fiction, which was very instrumental in forming who I am today, and Japanese animation, which I'm also obsessed with, or used to be. Now I'm an adult that doesn't have quite as much time for the young adult things anymore, but there's still two things that I love. And then here's the marriage of them. So it should have popped into my head right away, but I think it will be clear why it didn't as we get into the podcast a little more. <laughs> okay. Okay. So full disclosure before, and then I do have to do the, the recap so that people yeah. who don't know the story can follow along here, but full disclosure, I don't, I don't enjoy anime that is a thing it is just not I'm sorry save your hate mail we're all like different things okay like I just it's not a thing that works for me I think part of it is a visual thing I have a, a hard time with cartoons to begin with but especially anime and I know that there's like a cultural thing so there's a lot of little visual clues that I miss that reference things that so that goes over my head so that I feel a little bit lost the the blank eyes remind me of dolls it's established I think on this podcast that Kaylee is afraid of two things dolls and birds okay and there's a lot of birds and doll faces in anime so it's just it's not going to work for me whatever anyways Leah made me watch an anime in college and I I liked the story and I liked having something to talk about with Leah it was called Fruits Basket I did not like how it ended and I'm still a little traumatized it's fine anyways so that is my thing but I was because I love Leah and because she said that the book was fantasy and uh, I was like, oh, okay, I'm okay. So here we go. This is the story. <clears throat> Howl's Moving Castle, a fantasy novel by British author, Diane Wynne-Jones. It was first published in 1986. I mean, I was alive. Why did nobody tell me about this book? Okay, whatever, sorry, moving on. It was a runner up for a bunch of awards and eventually won the Phoenix Awards 20 years later recognizing that it was in total obscurity. So maybe that's why. Okay, fine. La la, here we go. Book recap. 
16-year-old Sophie Hatter is the eldest of three sisters living in Market Clipping, a town in the magical kingdom of Ingeri. Fairy tale tropes are accepted as possible regular ways of life, including that the eldest of three will never be successful. As the eldest, Sophie is resigned to a dull future running the family hat shop. Her two sisters are sent off, Martha to learn witchcraft and Letty to work in the town's bakery. Sophie resigns herself to her lot in life, a very dull life. Unbeknownst to her, she is able to talk life into objects. She finally goes to visit her sister in the bakery, only to discover that her sisters have switched places. It is Martha posing as Letty, who is working at the bakery and getting lots of positive attention from the boys and men in the town. When the powerful Witch of the Waste considers Sophie a threat because of that whole turning things into alive thing, then she, the Wicked Witch of the Waste, turns Sophie into an old crone. Sophie leaves the shop and sets off on her grand adventure, old age and knobby knees be damned. She frees a dog from a stick rope trap, and now she has a walking stick. Then she helps a scarecrow stand up, and then she continues on her way. She is sure that due to the rules of three and fairy tales, something good will happen next. And, well, she gets to Hal's Castle, a castle that has been roaming around the area for a while that everyone knows is Cowl's Castle, and Hal is an evil magician who eats the hearts of young girls. But Sophie figures that she's not a young girl, so she might be safe. Plus, she's cold and tired, and so she enters the castle and plops herself down by the fire. There she meets Michael, Hal's apprentice, and Calcifer, Hal's fire demon, who lives in the fire and helps cook the food, etc. In order to earn her keep, Sophie decides that she will be a cleaning lady, and begrudgingly, Hal accepts her, even if he bitches and moans about all her cleaning and won't let her into his room at all. Also, Sophie strikes a bargain with Hal's fire demon, Calcifer. If she can break the contract between Hal and Calcifer, then Calcifer will return her to her original youthful form. Part of the contract, however, stipulates that neither Hal nor Calcifer can disclose the main clause, leaving Sophie to figure it out on her own. Oh, and of course, Calcifer knows that she's under a spell, but she, of course, can't actually talk about it and tell anybody either. Okay, so Sophie learns that Hal is a rather self-absorbed and fickle, but ultimately rather kind of sort of a good-natured person. He spreads malicious rumors about himself to avoid work and responsibility. So he's a little immature. The door to his castle is actually a portal that opens into four different places. Market Clipping, the seaside city of Port Haven, the royal capital of Kingsbury, and Howell's boyhood home in Wales, or the real world, where he was named Howell Jenkins. Howell's apprentice, Michael, runs most of the day-to-day affairs of Howell's business, selling little potions and charms and etc. while Howell chases his ever-changing paramours. See, he doesn't eat hearts, he just breaks them. Hal spends hours in the bathroom every day, primping himself to look handsome for girls. Michael has said that the day he does not do this is the day that Michael will believe that Hal is truly in love. After she runs out of things to clean, Sophie does mending and she accidentally bespells Hal's clothing. When Prince Justin, the king's younger brother, goes missing while searching for a wizard named Sullivan, the king orders Hal to find them both and kill the Witch of the Waste. Hal, however, has his own reasons to avoid the witch. The witch is a jilted former lover and has laid a dark curse on him. There are a few adventures along the way and some mistaken identities. Hal is currently trying to win the hand of a girl named Letty, and Michael is also in love with a girl named Letty. And yes, they are both Sophie's sisters, but thankfully not the same sister. Remember, one of the Lettys is actually a Martha. The scarecrow that Sophie helped keeps trying to get into the castle, and it freaks everybody out. Michael and Sophie try to do a spell that involves catching a falling star, but they can't. And it turns out that that is a James Dunn poem from Wales, and then they get to go visit our reality. So Hal can swap the poem for a spell, and he meets his nephew's teacher, Mrs. and 
Angorian and she seems rather smitten with her. And well, Letty is forgotten. So now he's trying to woo Miss Angorian. And also Sophie visits the king to try to help Hal out of getting out of having to be sent to go find the prince and the missing wizard, but to no avail. And also while on that errand, she meets Hal's former teacher and learns a bit about him and has another encounter with the witch. And there's a very large set of stairs and it's very funny. Also, there's a dog who is very clearly a man who's been shapeshifted to be a dog. He's now joined the castle family. He's a bit of a mystery. Also, there's a bunch of green slime. We'll talk about it. Speaking of the witch, though, she's still on the hunt for Hal. She finds them and Calcifer and Michael and Hal must move the castle to safely making new doors and moving Calcifer's true location. So this is all scary and weird, but they do it. They do it. Just as they're very afraid of the witch, Hal successfully avoids her until she lures Sophie into a trap. Believing that the witch has taken Hal's current love interest, Miss Angorian, Sophie goes to save her and is captured. Hal comes to save Sophie, unshaven and a mess. This demonstrates his love for her. Her, not Miss Angorian. He kills the witch. He reveals that Miss Angorian was actually the witch's fire demon in disguise. The fire demon had taken control of the witch, was attempting to create a perfect human by fusing Michael Solomon, my other wizard, and Prince Justin, and bits of them were going to put together. They were spread out with the scarecrow, the skull on Michael's workstation, the random dog, whatever. The perfect man was going to be completed with the addition of Hal's head. It's a little confusing. At the castle, Ms. Angorian takes hold of Calcifer to capture Hal's heart. Hal has given his heart to Calcifer. That was the contract between them. The heart kept Calcifer alive, and in return, Calcifer put his magic at Hal's disposal. Sophie uses her ability to bring things to life, to free Calcifer, to reinsert Hal's heart into his chest, thus breaking the contract between him and Hal. With his heart restored, Hal destroys the witch's fire demon, freeing Sullivan and Justin. Calcifer, as promised, breaks Sophie's spell. She returns to her proper age. Hal had realized early on that Sophie was under a spell, secretly tried to remove the curse, but he'd met with failure. He figured she just liked being in disguise. Whatever. Calcifer decides he's going to hang out with them because he likes them. It's a found family. Sophie and Hal are, you know, lovestruck. They admit they love each other. Hal's like, yeah, we should probably just live happily ever after. How adorable. Oh, also the wizard is going to teach Letty and Michael and Martha are happy together. And Prince Justin is going to go help his brother, the king, win the war. So everybody gets wrapped up and is happy at the end. I read this book and I was like, this is an awesome fairy tale book. I'm so confused as to how it is also an anime. And then I watched it. So Howl's Moving Castle is a Japanese movie, 2004. It's a fantasy film written, directed by Miyazaki. The film is loosely based on the 1986 novel. Loosely. Okay, here we go. Oh, and then they dubbed it in English. Okay, so here we go. Here's the story. Sophie, a young, shy hat maker, encounters a wizard named Hal on her way to visit her sister, Letty. Upon returning home, she meets the Witch of the Waste, who transforms her into a 90-year-old woman. Sophie leaves home, sets off through the countryside. She meets a living scarecrow, who she calls Turniphead. He leads her to Hal's moving castle, where she enters without invitation, and subsequently she meets Hal's young apprentice, Marco, or Markle? I thought they said Marco the entire time, but it's Markel, because there's an L at Okay, so Markle, so I might accidentally say Marco, just forewarned. And there's also a fire demon named Calcifer, the source of the castle's magic and movement. Calcifer makes a deal with Sophie, agreeing to break her curse if she breaks his link with Hal. When Hal appears, Sophie announces that she has hired herself as a cleaning lady. She cleans and loves the castle. The scarecrow visits and is helpful and not scary. She accidentally mixes up Hal's beauty products and his hair gets dyed a weird color and he throws a tantrum and then there's green slime everywhere, but she manages to bully slash control him into being normal again. And she also has a 
woe is me, I was never beautiful moment. And then she cries in the rain and then Turnip Head brings her an umbrella. Worth noting that Sophie's age and decrepitness seems to wax and wane based on her emotions. Also, we get Hal's point of view of him being like a half bird creature flying around in war zones and being a bomb or maybe fighting bombs. Spooky. Meanwhile, Sophie's nation is caught up in a war with the neighboring kingdom who is searching for their missing prince. The king summons Hal to fight in the war. However, Hal decides to send Sophie to the king under the pretense of being his mother to tell him, the king, that Hal is too much of a coward to fight. Before leaving, he gives Sophie a charmed ring that will lead her to Calcifer and guarantee her safety. Sophie meets a dog that she thinks is Howl in disguise, and then the witch who recognizes her. They all climb up a ton of stairs, and Sophie carries the dog, and the witch sweats a lot. Then Sophie goes to meet Sullivan, the king's sorceress, and the witch is tortured. Well, I mean, not just punished by Sullivan, but also drained of all her power and reverted to her true age, that of a harmless old woman. Sullivan, the sorceress, warns Sophie that Hal will meet the same fate if he does not fight for the king. She might just take Sophie captive, so Hal will have to come. Hal then arrives to rescue Sophie. Sullivan tries to trap him by turning him into a monster, but according to Wikipedia, quote, with Sophie's help, he remembers himself and just barely avoids death. I did not understand that that's what was happening, but okay. They escape on a flying machine thing along with the former Witch of the Waste and the Sullivan's dog, Keen. In the meantime, soldiers from each kingdom break into the locations of Hal's castle, but there's no one there because, again, it's a magic castle. Sophie learns that Hal's life is somehow bound to Calcifer's and that Hal has been transforming into a bird-like creature to in order to interfere with, quote, both sides of the war. Again, I didn't get that, but that's what Wikipedia says. And each transformation makes it more and more difficult for him to return to human form. Okay, so then Hal has the castle magically linked to Sophie's home, parking the castle itself on the town's outskirts. A few days later, the town is bombed by enemy aircraft and the evil sorceress's henchmen attack the house and Sophie's hat slash flower shop. Howell heads out to protect the group. Sophie then moves everyone out of the house and then removes Calcifer from the fireplace, which collapses the castle. The Witch of the Waste realizes that Calcifer has Hal's heart and grabs the fire demon, setting herself on fire. Sophie panics, pours water on the witch, which douses Calcifer. The remainder of the castle then splits in two and Sophie falls down into a hole and is separated from the group. But following the charmed wing, she wanders into a scene from the past where she sees a young Hal catch a falling star, which is Calcifer, and then give it his heart. So then Sophie says, find me in the future. And then she's teleported away and she returns to the present, finds Hal. They reunite with the others. The witch returns Hal's heart. And Sophie places it back inside Hal, reviving him and freeing Calcifer, though he decides to stay. Sophie's curse is broken for reals now, although her hair remains white. After she kisses Turnip Head on the cheek, he returns to human form, revealing himself to be Prince Justin, that missing prince from the enemy kingdom. He reveals that only his true love's kiss can break his curse. But, uh, you know, Sophie's over there macking on Hal. So Prince Justin promptly heads home to stop the war, but promises he will come back to fight for her. Sullivan, watching through a crystal globe, also decides randomly to end the war. Sometime later, bombers fly under dark skies over recovered and green countryside. However, they are headed towards a different war, while Sophie, Hal, and the others travel in the opposite direction in a new flying castle. The end. This movie had me for the first 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah, the first 10 minutes, right? And then when we, okay, so this came out in 2004, and I think it, the, the English release wasn't too far after that. But this was extremely exciting to me because it was one of the first animes, like full motion picture animes that they released in the United States in theaters. Now it wasn't for long, it was only like 
two weeks and, you know, one tiny little theater and very limited show times. But it was one of the few we were able to actually go to in the theater. And it was crazy excited. I was so excited. It was based on one of my favorite children's books. And this is going to be amazing. And then I spent the entire time bitching about all the changes and how, what they did. Why did they do that? And they completely ruined this and that. And Joe actually has no memory of watching it the first time through, I think, because I was so, so bitter. And then strangely, well, not strangely, because no one read the book. Everyone loved it. it like, it's, it's not a panned movie no. in, in anime circles by any extent. It's, it's not like Miyazaki's no, like most favorite work. You know, people you'd probably put Spirited Away, Princess Mononoke, even The Castle of Cagliostro, which I'm completely mispronouncing, right? Probably above it for the serious fan base. But it's it's up there. I mean, people mention it as being a, gr a good anime. It's on the lists. It's, yeah, it's liked. So what happened? Why is it, why is both the book loved and the anime loved among their own circles, but they're so different. And so what happened in between them? What happened? <laughs> I, you know what? Here's the thing. Okay. After doing a little bit of research, Miyazaki was like, this is a great book. I want to make this into a movie. Also, I want to make an anti-Iraq war, anti-war movie. So he made one movie. He should have made two movies. That's, that's, that's the thing. Like, and I, Obviously, I do a podcast where we talk about movies based on books, right? That's a thing. I understand that adaptions are a thing. And sometimes you got to make changes. You combine characters. You spread things out. You, you shrink the time. You do these things. You take shortcuts, you know, whatever. You're telling a visual story instead of like just with the words. But this is like extreme. We're, we, he added in so much technology. He added in this whole war, something that completely, and then he changes the characters to fit this new story. And so I like, at least it says on Wikipedia, loosely based on, because it is loosely, it is a loose, it is loosely based on. So once I get over my and we will revisit all the changes because I know we both have a lot to say about that. <laughs> but when we look at them as separate entities, right, then you can say, okay, I see how this movie works. I see why people like it. It may or may not be what works for me outside of the adaptation issues. I can kind of see it, but it is so hard to separate them because the changes just feels so out of sync. Yeah. So I, it, what you have, right, is you have Diana Wynne-Jones, who had, it has a very well-established perspective and voice. She does a lot with time travel, interdimensional travel, but with a fantasy versus science fiction lens for the most part. Mm -hmm. She has this established ethos of a lot of her stuff that plays off of the more tradition, traditional Western mythology, right? So you have her writing these books. Then you have Hao Miyazaki, who is very well known in his circle, right? I think if you're gonna know one or the other, you're more likely to know Miyazaki than Jones. Yeah, even I as a non-anime person knew right. that name, yeah. 
but he is also known for writing or you know directing conceiving of these stories that are very based in Japanese mythos you know so he plays a lot with mythos also he plays a lot with time and so he does a lot of period pieces so theoretically the two of them should make a beautiful movie I think the problem is that you go, you, you're not going directly from Jones to Miyazaki. You're going from Jones to the canon of English young adult speculative fantasy fiction to the canon of anime and then to the canon of Miyazaki. And Miyazaki is looking through these several lenses and he's not able to pick out the things in Jones's work that are important from a Western perspective to translate those successfully into a movie that we like as American anime fans, but was intended for Japanese anime fans, right? So somehow you have to get the mythos from a Western perspective to something that an Asian perspective would enjoy, which does require changes. So there's a lot of the elements that were key to the book, like the three sister trope, right? That's cute because adults reading the book are like, oh, I've seen that over and over in myths, right? The three brothers go out to seek their fortune. The oldest is rude to the witch and he gets turned into the donkey. The younger one, is, you know, the middle child sort of blows the witch off and he has the town. But the youngest one is sweet and nice and shares his last crust of bread and the witch grants him, you know, all, all the fortune and fame and everything right as an oldest sister of three by the way I was like with Sophie at the beginning I was like yeah girl you fight that system (laughs) do it right so we're familiar with the mythos and kids reading it might or might not be familiar with the mythos but she presents it in such a way that it's just sort of straightforward and understood right like this is just how it is and kids accept that I accepted it when I was a kid and read the book and I was like oh Yeah, okay, that makes sense. I get it. So there's a lot of those elements, the three encounters that happen and and the stuff. But she's also very good, Jones is, at presenting the mythos and then adjusting the trope or, you know, changing things, making things work out despite it, you know? Which isn't subverting the trope, which is really important. Like she's not being like, I'm gonna throw that trope out the window and do the opposite. She's like, I'm gonna work Mm -hmm. within this parameters. Yes, the the eldest sister has a different path, Mm -hmm. but it's also built in that she's the eldest stepsister because her father died her or sorry her father her mother died her father got remarried she has two younger half sisters and so that that sets it from the very beginning that she sees herself as the third yeah. as the first of three and she's not actually she's the first of one and that comes back in towards the end so it's beautifully done and and it, it is actually thematically on point But I think what you're about to say is that that is not a thing in Japanese culture. Those specific tropes aren't. So I think what Miyazaki did was he's like, I need these these mythical encounters, but he presented them in a way that would be understandable to his own audience, right? Versus a Western audience. So you have an element like the encounter with the scarecrow, but it doesn't become a scary thing, 
right? It's not, it doesn't terrify her. Instead, it helps her. And that's more an Asian trope where you, the person going along their journey perseveres, continues persevering. And because they are persevering, they get help along the way. So that's what she's doing on her journey. She keeps trying, even though the odds are against her, even though she's having to collaborate with her enemy now and be kind to them. But that is the mythos there. I was, so if you're like, why on earth is she being nice to this old decrepit witch that turned her into an old woman? What is going on with her? That's because that is viewed as, as noble and good. That's the heroic journey is you have to be kind to those who are not kind to you. So you have these, these mythos things that he includes. They're just the wrong ones right. for the book to make any sense. You know, like the main, the main thing about the book is that she was able to achieve because she was actually special and she needed to see that she was capable, right? Her gift, she had a very special gift to give light to things. So that's what she had to do was give light to Calcifer because he wasn't actually alive. He's a star. He's a substance. He's, a, he's not living the way we are. So she had to separate him and give him his own life and then give Howell his heart back. And she could do that because of who she was. And she had to find that strength within herself. Whereas the end result in the movie was basically the, the um, you know, the kiss of the woman, <laughs> the kiss of the good woman, the tears of the, of the, of the of the heroine bring back the hero yeah, and yeah. which is an established trope itself it's for sure not in the book and it actually reverses the entire message of the book which i think is the thing that upset me the most i mean i could have handled most of the ch- what and the nutty changes but that one yeah reading this as a young girl at the start of her feminist journey it was empowering this movie was not empowering exactly from my view as a woman exactly and that's the thing like she not only did she have this magic and she wasn't aware of her own power and then she became aware of her power and she used it in the way that she wanted to you know it was her decision it yeah it is a very feminist book not so much in the movie she's cleaning she's doing this and I read this thing that was like oh no Mizaki you know the way he treats women you can have an old woman and you can have a young woman and you can have a powerful woman and blah 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 and I was like right you have a maiden mother crone issue here like this is uh-huh. definitely happens but they're all all the adults are crappy and mm-hmm. sophie's the only one who's not crappy because she's not an adult like it's it's not really about it, it's it's more about like innocence will save the day versus self-empowerment will help the people you love and mm-hmm. i personally am much more of a fan of self-empowerment will help the people you love versus I think innocence is a is a concept that we need to kind of get away with or go away from because it it smacks of patriarchal and save your virginity and blah all that bullshit so I really liked Sophie's energy in the book yes because her energy was pretty much being frustrated and annoyed with all the things that you should be frustrated and annoyed with telling everyone to grow up who needed to grow up taking initiative and responsibility she just kind of needed to get out of that little box that she put herself in she needed to go on her heroic journey and become who she really was inside but all that snarkiness i mean the way she talks about howl is dead on throughout and when she realizes or starts to realize she really is in love with him it pisses her 
off. Yeah. She's mad about like, she just, I'm just going to leave. And goes and like tries to leave multiple times. There's like several chapters in the books. They have headings, which are hilarious. Like they're all in which Sophie talks to some hats or in which Sophie, right? And it's like, in which Sophie tries to leave the castle again. <laughs> <laughs> trying to leave the castle things keep thwarting her getting in her way right well and that i i am with you i love sophie's energy i also love that in the book it's much more clear that she's been under this curse as an old woman and then she's like yeah okay i'm an old lady now you don't want my heart you don't want my body I'm fine. I'm going to be all snarky. I'm going to tell you what's up. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I'm not going to let this stop me. And she stays an old woman the whole time. The whole time. In the um, movie, they have this concept where like, sometimes she's not under the spell. Like she ages up and down. It's like tied to her emotions, which kind of diminishes the whole power of the spell to begin with. It's and I almost tied to her love of how. Yeah. Like when she's dreaming about how she's, she's young. young. Yes. She's pursuing how she's younger. She, and, like, and also they make her more like beautiful, even when she still has the gray hair, she, when she's dealing with how she gets like her knobby face goes away and like, oh, she's not as hunched and like all these things. And I think that it's trying to say something symbolically, but it just doesn't work. It's kind of like, well, once you get that magic man in your life, like you too can be young and beautiful again. And I just, I don't, I don't like it. I don't like it. I like like that in the book, she was under the spell how fell in love with her anyways even though she was like an old crusty lady lady and you know he knew she was under a spell he figured she was he says i guess you like being in disguise and then he accepted that he wasn't planning on changing her he wasn't he came to rescue her when she was an old lady like that is true love acceptance and it's it's wonderful and yeah it was just that the whole the romance part was done so much better in the book because it was more subtle and it was like a a dawning realization which I feel is way more what love is is a dawning realization that you care for somebody and that you're going to do the thing it did have that YA trope of oh he doesn't love me he loves somebody else but it was underplayed it what she didn't mope around she didn't cry about it you know and and she didn't have she wasn't angsty I hate angsty YA shit and she was not angsty Sophie is not angsty Sophie in the movie is outside crying because she was never beautiful like right Right. mm. and Sophie in the book just didn't care she's like yeah whatever I look fine I like my hair yeah exactly Her her biggest complaint about getting old was that her body hurt, which legit girl, yeah, like legit. one of the worst parts about getting older for realsies. <laughs> right, right. Okay, so I asked Joe about uh-huh. his opinion on the movie because he hasn't read the book, and he was like, "I liked it. Um, I thought that the the animation was beautiful. Storyline was sort of disjointed, and I'm like, okay, okay, fair." Fair. So let's talk about the animation. Gorgeous. Yes. Absolutely gorgeous. This, this was his movie after Spirited Away. Okay. I saw Spirited Away. I did not like Spirited Away. So that's a whole other thing. Well, you can yell at me later. The animation in this. I'm entitled to your opinions. Okay. Even if they're wrong. <laughs> I need that on it. That should be in our shop. You're entitled <laughs> to your opinions. It's okay that you're wrong. Um, <laughs> I would buy that shirt. I would wear the shit out of that shirt. Okay. Okay, 
the animation was beautiful when it was landscapes, when it was like complicated backgrounds, when it yeah. was like these moving things, it was beautiful. The way their faces were done, and I think that is just an anime thing, their face, they don't have a lot of expression going on on the face. And that's why to me, it feels very doll-like. And, and then also, and I know this is because of the dub. I, I'm sorry, Christian Bale's voice did, was not Hal's voice. It was wrong on all the levels. It could possibly be wrong. And like, it didn't seem to match up with the animation sometimes. I mean, I just, it took me out so much. And then that makes me- me, Billy Crystal as Calcifer, they tried to make Calcifer into like a Disney style sidekick character yeah this ain't mushu this is not was. eddie murphy being mushu like knock right. that off right like no yeah yeah i'm with calcifer you should the way there was one scene when they moved the castle where calcifer powered up and i'm like that's how i pictured him mm -hmm. or in the book that image but they made him cutesy yeah when he wasn't actively using his powers and i just don't think he was supposed to be cutesy small no but not adorable, sort of freaky. And I could have totally seen them making little plush red calcifer yeah. dolls that are like in your hand with the little arms and the little face. And I was like, I don't want that. That's not what calcifer is supposed to be. So yeah, no, I so, didn't. In terms of their faces, right? Anime in general has those certain stylistic things that are in like indicative of anime, right? And the, the really the large eyes, small mouths, you know, those kind of things. But Miyazaki has even further his own style with that. And, and he does have these very simple presenting faces with these complicated backgrounds and beautiful, you know, background art. But his style, I mean, you can pick out a Miyazaki film anywhere, just just off of a, a poster without seeing any of the wording on it. You know, it's like, oh, that's going to be a Studio Ghibli show, movie. Got it. So that is, you know, I kind of knew that going and that wasn't that surprising. What I was disappointed on is that I expected him to do better with the character of Sophie as an old woman. Um, because I've always thought one of his stronger suits was doing those really wrinkly old ladies you know you think of the the witch in spirited away and she had a great you know wrinkly facial expressions and stuff and there were several scenes in the book where you know Sophie like had her wrinkles blown back because the, the wind was blowing so hard and that kind of stuff um I would have liked to see that stuff included in the movie I thought that there was a lot of things that they could have done in a Miyazaki style that would have been in keeping with the book but just the spirit of it did not translate for me yeah in the art style yeah it was also i got the impression very french did you get the impression it was the styling was french in the backgrounds and the cities because japan tends to be pretty obsessed with france oh. and their and the way and their styling they have a lot of the like lolita girl look is based a lot on like the French maid style. They, they're very into the little petitseries and, and frilly little like cake shops and, and ice cream parlors and parasols and the hats and, and, and stuff. It's, it's a thing where they're, they're very into France versus England. Mm -hmm. 
And I got that from the backgrounds. I'm just like, why would you take an English <laughs> writer's work that's not set in England, it's set in a land that is, is sort of extremes, right? Like the witch is from the waste, mm -hmm. which is several leagues away, but yet she still plagues them, you know, all that stuff. Um, but why would you, but, but the rest of it, like the, the seeds, Port Haven, mm -hmm. right? And- um, Kingsbury. In Kingsbury, I were definitely British to my thinking in the book mm -hmm. and and the little town she was from and stuff but it was not a British a turn of the century British aesthetic for me no and the time period was also changed because he changed it from I mean obviously it's a parallel universe so we don't know if there's time travel as well as parallel universe stuff going on or what's happening but it's definitely a different age i think it was set at least a hundred years earlier in the book than it was in the movie there were no automobiles no trains no planes. i was gonna say there was there was no no technology yeah no it tech. was very low tech and like the very first thing mm -hmm. that happens in the movie is we get airplanes and a train and the smoke of the yep. train and i'm like oh okay so we're making a whole nature versus technology thing mm -hmm. okay like the mystical versus the mechanical sure and again that's worth exploring and i would love to mm -hmm. see a movie about that and a movie about war and being bad blah 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 but I, I, why put those why dress this up in those costumes when you didn't need to it, and it didn't right. add anything to what the central point of the story was so yeah you're right like the original and then because that was so cool in the book we get to go to wales Mm -hmm. our version of reality and sophie is traumatized by riding in a horseless carriage that goes super fast which we know as we're reading is a car right but she has no concept whereas if and in, in, in the movie they never go to wales really they don't go to like a place that's outside but if they had sophie would have been like oh it's a car right <laughs> we have those in my world la 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 like it wouldn't have even been a when thing. i was a kid and i read this that was the most confusing part for me um but by the time they got to the car i was like oh they're in our time now okay so then i went back and reread it and i'm like and it's actually clever the way she writes it because sophie doesn't know what a computer is and this was 1986 so like home computers were brand new and like a luxury item so that by itself says that Howell's family has money mm -hmm. <laughs> enough money to have a home computer system for their 10 year old son yeah upstairs um, different from the television which was downstairs right? yeah like a whole but she describes it as these white mushroom looking things on floppy white stems stuck into the wall yes and I was just like that's so clever and yeah. how making pretend like computer games magic computer games on floppy disks about his life for his nephew it's clever and I got it it just took a little bit as a kid to get it so I do think as an adult looking back on the books, I appreciate reading them as an adult because I get things that just went whoosh over my head. There's a lot of Greek mythology in, and some Norse mythology in her books mm -hmm. that I was quantum mechanics that like, I didn't know about that until I hit college. You know, it was very, you know, but she's, she's well-educated. She, she likes to incorporate science in a fantastical way. And it's a good, I think a good segue for kids reading her books into that kind of the journey on both science fiction and fantasy. Like yeah. you could read her books and get really into either branch. 
and be really happy with your life. Yeah. I mean, as somebody who loves speculative fiction, I just loved this book so much for all the reasons. And I love the themes I, in the book. We have it's a very classic theme in fantasy, less so in sci fi um, about things not being what they seem. Right. You know, and like we have that with the obvious. Oh, Sophie's a younger lady in an old lady, you know, glamour spell. But we also have Howell. Howell goes to a lot of trouble to be like have this bad reputation and that he's actually not that bad. You know, all of these things. So I love the I love that the playing with the, that kind of a theme. I also loved that Howell talking about that he wasn't as bad. I like that it wasn't that she, he he just. um you know, found the right girl and stopped being a cad and, you know, breaking hearts as soon as they fell for him. It was that he literally didn't have his heart and he was trying to fill the void of not having a heart and hoping maybe this girl will work out for me and I'll actually feel human again and be able to love finally. So when Sophie finally gave him back his heart, then it was a, he's in, he was immediately like, like he already loved her with what heart he had connected yeah because Calcifer also loved her you know so the two of them were connected to her and he wanted to be with her and then she finally gave him back his heart and the first thing he says is so you want to go live happily ever after yes <laughs> and he's like it'll probably be pretty weird <laughs> that's so nice <laughs> everyone gets their happy Everyone gets a happy ending. I like that. I like the way that she portrays adults in her books. Um, The portrayal of Fanny, I thought was remarkably fair. Yes. So I didn't mention this in the, in the recap, but Fanny was the stepmother or the, you know, the new mother who come in and she was like, okay, so now your father is dead and we don't have enough money. So I'm going to have to like split you guys up. And like, this is what I'm going to do for you and for you and for you. And she wasn't like an evil person she was very much a pragmatist and then one of the daughters one of uh, one of the sisters in the book is like yeah you know mom like blah 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 and she kind of runs her down a little bit and Sophie's like oh okay but then later Sophie's like well actually maybe that wasn't quite an accurate portrayal maybe my sister kind of had an ex to grind and I should make space in my heart that that wasn't quite right and it wasn't and then Fanny comes back in at the end and I left this out but she's there and she's happy and she's happy for Sophie and it's it's a really nice relationship that's being shown it is and she has several of those sorts of relationships throughout her books where she shows a child's or the the I mean Sophie's on that great like that cusp of adulthood right at 16 in old times right she's just a young adult but that difference of perspective between being a kid or a young adult and how you view your parent and then coming to a more mature understanding of why they behave that way how your behavior was you know and sort of reconciling that they weren't as awful as you thought they were they're not as good as you possibly once thought they were but they're a human Right. And you can have a proper adult relationship with them. So I've all, I always appreciated the way she treats the parent-child relationships in her books, that they're sort of designed in a way that will help someone at the age these children or these books are intended to be read, right? Which is the like tweeny years, early teen years. That um, would help someone at that point in their life kind of bridge that space where you're pushing your parents away, you're, you're spreading your wings, everything your parents do is mean and <laughs> unfair. And you know, like they just don't understand you, right? 
and but her books really kindly help kids I think navigate that period and acknowledge validate the feelings but then bring them through the feelings yeah. and I like that like it's very thoughtful the way she handles those sorts of relationships in and she doesn't it's not like beat you over the head with them they're small right. things but they're noticeable things and they're things that I remember latching onto like okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah no and and part of the theme of the book isn't just love in in the romantic way but it's like that found family love uh, and so Sophie has there's a found family that's what's here in this in this yeah. castle with the random dog man and you know the calcifer and then apparently also you know these other like it, it just it grows and it's it's lovely and I think the movie tried to get that we've got the wicked you know the wicked witch is now here and we've got this dog who's not a man dog it's just a dog in the movie <laughs> a spy for the the sorceress who then decides to that he doesn't want to be a spy anymore but I just I feel like it was a little bit more obvious in the in the it, it was interesting because in the movie, they say things like very bonk, bonk on the head, like everybody's weird in this family, you know, and you're like, oh, that's like such a sweet idea, found family, blah, blah, blah. But they, they say it, but they don't really show it in the same way that in the book, even though we didn't have the scarecrow joining in with their merry band, we did see it felt more like a family in the book than in the movie. And in the movie, I think part of what rubbed me weird is that Marco is so young in the in the book yeah. it's michael he's an apprentice he's a peer of sophie's and he's in love with her sister and they're like on the same level and she never thinks of him that way because she you know she's being sophie she's being her old lady self and whatever but you know he's this young man and normally you know that would have been weird for them to be whatever but it's fine in the movie they make him very very young he's a child we don't know how he comes to be employed or like be with hal at all it's never explained but it sets it up as the end is mommy, daddy, little child. Oh, what an adorable little family. And I'm like, okay, that's gross. Oh, like, I don't, mm -hmm. We don't need that. <laughs> like, right. Let Michael it's, stay an adult, please. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I liked in the book how Letty, the real Letty, right, was sort of falling for the dog man. And for a while, Sophie was really afraid it was Prince Justin because Letty did not like Prince Justin. <laughs> and then it turned out that no, it was really Wizard Suleiman or Sullivan because he's from Wales also. He's really yes. Sullivan is his last name, Ben Sullivan. So it was the guy she actually, like, she liked the right dude, right? And so I, I you know, those little things, like you're not gonna, you know, hey, I, I hate you, but now I love you. Because I fell in love with you when you were a dog, even though you were a dick to me when we first met. <laughs> yes, it's you know yeah. I mean? There's not those things. No, I like the. I think the narrative, the narrative structure is tight in this book. Yeah, even it, with lots of characters and lots, lots of like, lots of stuff happening, a lot right? of plot lines to keep track of. And I, I will admit, at one point, I got lost about which sister was which and who was, was in love with who. And I think that's intentional. It's supposed to be a little confusing, like hard to kind of keep track, you know. Yeah. So we have the, the 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 door in the castle, and it opens over here to you know uh, Port Haven. It opens over here, and they're different lands with different kings. We just get plunked in. We don't get a lot of exposition, which I love. Okay, so Hal's basically playing off these two different kinds of areas. In the movie, it kind of felt like there was one area, but then there were mm -hmm. two wars and it was less 
obvious that he was doing both sides and it but then it was more obvious what he was doing because we have these scenes of him flying around okay i don't know i know i'm like kind of getting into another thing but i liked that in the book we basically stay in sophie's point of view the whole time yeah we don't take these departures into other places and that keeps us very rooted into her experience and trusting her following along and that that red line through is really Mm -hmm. appreciated and when she was confused we were confused and when she was happy we were happy and we didn't get extra stuff that would muddy the water any at all exactly yeah she really follows the if you introduce something follow it through Mm -hmm. right so the scarecrow the stick the dog like everything it comes right back around and is important at the end and it all ties together and it all makes sense whereas Miyazaki's style it's filled with charming fantastical elements that have no depth to the actual story they have no they don't carry the story anywhere right it's just fun to watch you know, though, that's that's a cool magic blob-like dude. I mean, even with the Witch of the Waste, they sort of just turned her into a non-villain, almost an obstacle than a villain, when she was the main bad guy Right in the book. Yeah. And, and they took some concepts, like in the book, the witch got controlled by her demon, by her fire demon. Right. And so she was at the witch herself, once they got into her fortress, was actually very easy to vanquish. It was the fire demon that then they were more concerned about. And Miyazaki similarly had the witch be like a decoy bad guy, but he didn't make her demon the main bad guy. He made this other magician the bad guy, but then she didn't get her comeuppance. Not only did she not get her comeuppance, but she just randomly decided to stop the war for no reason yeah i mean there was no payoff and we didn't understand why she was making this war happen it it made no sense it Mm -hmm. it was very unsatisfying how that resolution happened yeah also a war takes two sides so even if one side is like okay i'll stop being at war now that's not how you end a war people i just (laughs) just for fun (laughs) no more war oh okay sure so there, okay, what did I, what, what scenes did I like in the movie? I liked a lot of the scenes that had the intricate background stuff, even if what was being said on screen was not cool, because it was fun watching the, the cute little mobiles, pretty, all the pretty sparkly stuff in the background and how that moved around. It was great animation. I liked, um, <laughs> I feel bad about liking it. I liked the stair scene with the witch and the dog and Sophie, because I have been there walking up stairs in the heat and feeling your makeup slide off (laughs) and your your dress stick to you and while you're hauling things and they're I thought it was funny um I also felt bad for laughing at it because I'm like they're clearly making fun of fat people but as a fat person I'm like I'll laugh it's my domain (laughs) it's kind of but that's like the only scene, honestly, that really made me giggle, you know, like, and I think it was funny because of how long it dragged on. Yeah, that it that <laughs> there's definitely a humor when things just go longer than they're supposed Keep to. Going but, and, going. and it was funny. And I also felt with you, I'm like, why are we we're, we're punching the, the witch? Like, It's okay right. to laugh at her because she's the witch. 
but we are literally laughing at a fat lady who can't climb stairs as fast as an old lady. Right. Okay. And, you know, and the old lady's carrying a fat dog, right? And the old lady's also not thin. It's just two fat ladies climbing stairs, climbing one stairs. carrying a dog, and it's taking forever while they're bitching at one another. So the bitching yes. was what made it kind of work. But in the book, Sophie goes up those stairs. She has her whole encounter with the king. She leaves. She's on the other side of town. She bumps into the witch. The witch is like, well, where are you going? And Sophie's like, uh, the castle. Because she's not going to go back to the house castle. So the witch is like, okay, fine. I'm calling your bluff. And they go back to the castle. And then Sophie has to climb those fucking stairs again. And like, she's like, fuck, what happens when I get to the top? Are they going to be like, you were already here? Are they going to out me? And so like, <laughs> the tension was more. And it was funny because they're snippy, you know? Yeah. And then she gets in there and she's just like, I'm going to just walk through like I belong. And I, and I love the way that the book is like, you get handed between courtiers from this person to this person. And it gets fancier and fancier as the farther into the castle you go. It's like those little details that are beautiful that were just not, not there. And they couldn't yes. put that in the movie. You yes. could have seen like- them being easily the done that. And, it's, and, and get that bewildered, dizzying expression on their faces. Like, yes. What is happening? Where am I going? I'm going okay. And then she finally gets to the king and he's like, what else do you have to say to me? And she's, her mind goes like blank. And she goes, Powell says he'll only help you if you give me your, him your daughter's hand in marriage. And daughter's he, like, two. <laughs> exactly. He's like, that's not going to work. Uh, <laughs> and, and he obviously I, I my vibe from the king was he was like that's funny he you know what I mean yes. he didn't he wasn't like horrified how would how does it what my two-year-old he was just okay you clearly just are back here yep. the king was more sympathetic too he really didn't want to fight he wanted his brother to help him fight blah 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 whatever okay he was nice to Sophie he wasn't yes. mean you know he was a guy he was like in a, just a room with a chair like it wasn't all this pomp and circumstance involved dad he had his two-year-old right there under under, the under his desk <laughs> playing yes <laughs> it was nice speaking of it the parent-child thing like I would have liked to see that scene there were yeah. lots of scenes that I'm I trying to have. think of something I really liked in the movie I liked Okay, hold on, I gotta go back to the beginning. Do, 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 do. Right. No, I didn't like that. Okay, the the creepy things, the the henchmen that were all the blobbies, yeah. that was well done. That it was, was a little yeah. different than in the book. It was well done. Not a big fan of making the, the stepmom be, she planted basically a bug in the castle that hurt Calcifer and whatever. Yeah. Like, why did why? We didn't need that. But I did like the 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 style of those little creepy things. Um Oh my God, I know there's other parts of this movie that I liked. It's really hard to judge it having read the book first. Yeah. Because all you can see is the stuff that's missing. Which is so that sad. That would have been great to add in. But I think I was trying to, I'm like, okay, I'm going to judge the book on its merits, mm-hmm. the movie on its merits, and then how the two blend together. So just looking at the movie on its merits. Okay, okay, I got one. I got one. What I, I, I did like when in the movie... When Hal comes home and, and like Sophie's just there now and he's like, well, who are you? And she's like, I'm your cleaning lady, whatever. And she's cooking and he's, well, I'm going to cook. And then he helps cook and then they all sit down and eat together. And Marco's like, you can have one of these. They're the only ones that are clean. And, clean. You know, I really liked the cleaning montage. I liked like that was well done. It was cute. I liked that Hal cooked too. That was nice. You mm-hmm. know, um, 
I was also in the book. It, I, I, I know, but I'm just I mean, saying. And, but what I'm saying is the best the things we like best in the movie are the things, Were the things in, the book. in the book. Yeah. You know, like the, the, them calling the foggy weird, you know, basically the foggy moorlands, the wastes cracked me up. I'm right. like, the British are all over there going, what the hell? That's <laughs> my backyard. <laughs> right, the wastes. Never been like, to the highlands. <laughs> right, the wastes to me looked like death valley yeah right it was not it was supposed to be hot hot. and it was it was dusty and it was uncomfortable it was miserable i really missed the inclusion of the second seven league boots which i get why they cut because that concept is not a concept that that japanese audiences would be that familiar with but the seven league boots were hilarious especially in the book the first time she puts on these and you're supposed to you take a a step and you go seven leagues right so she and mark are gonna like combine they're each both gonna wear one and that that way they don't have to go quite so far and they're like zip zap and they're like keep missing each other backwards and forwards oh my god that was hilarious and it was it was it was super well done Mm uh yeah i mean yeah, I'm really struggling here. Like the movie was fine, but, but narrative structure was not good. No, I'm just gonna put that. And then I know I'm gonna like a lot of anime fans are just gonna be like clutching their hearts at this, but um, it was not a good narrative structure. You did not have those tie-ins and and harkenings back. You had a lot of stuff that happened just for the visual that had no real like you know what was the point of the plane crashing into the castle and the yeah castle? and what was and the, the point of the dog her. being a spy and somehow being able to communicate with the sorceress yeah. through a thing but then not i was like oh, okay it was definitely a we want a couple of cute side characters here yeah so this is what we're gonna do if this was disney i would you know accuse them of just wanting merchandise i don't know if right? it works like that in japan but it, it definitely felt to me oh we want a calcifer plushie and we want a little heen dog squishy and you know what are we gonna sell like that's it yeah mm-hmm. no i completely agree with what you said at the start that miyazaki should have made two movies he should have made howl's moving castle and then he should have made <laughs> a war or movie. I could have seen, um, and maybe it's just because I just watched Stardust not that long ago, but if they had taken the same elements, the same kind of film styles that they used in Stardust to make Howl's Moving Castle, I could have seen that working really well. Mm-hmm. This updated fun fairy tale thing. And I, and I think, I mean, it really comes down to the mechanical is- issues and the mechanics of it. Like you said, yeah. the narrative structure, but also the mechanical stuff changes the tone so much. The castle is a robot that's walking and it's clanky and loud. It's not mystical and, and spooky, you know, right. it's not, yeah. it's not scary. And in the book, the scarecrow is a lot more cleaned up and yes. gentlemanly looking with his little hat and his bouncy pogo stick esque and the mechanics of what Sophie can and can't do. Her magic is gone, you know, all of these things. And it just, so there were things that I knew they wouldn't be able to include like the poem right I, I looked that up it's a real poem yeah by by um john don and uh it's it's accurate did you recognize it, made, it i did not recognize it oh my god i had a flat i was reading it and i was like wait a minute like this is like not overly familiar but like familiar, familiar enough, enough that i know i feel like and i 
seriously, I was like, have I heard this on Jeopardy? Like I was trying to figure out wh- like where I've heard some of these words. And then I was like, oh, maybe it is a riddle. Like I'm so confused. And then when they said John, I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was an English major. I'm sure I read this. But it's clever. It's, and, and that's the kind of thing that Jones is really good at doing. Um, and that writing at both an adult level and a child level and introducing kids to this canon of literature and concepts beyond what they're familiar with at the time. Just to give a little background on Jones, because it's fun. (laughs) Um, She studied under both C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. Oh, oh, did you catch the Tolkien reference? (laughs) Which one? (laughs) Okay, yes, but like in chapter 11, there's a sign on Megan's house labeled Rivendell. Rivendell, yes. yes. The last homely house, okay. Last homely house, yes. You know, those, those things. And he references um, Hamlet at one point in the book, Alas, poor Yorick. Yes. There's, there's also, yes. what is it? Percival and Gareth, who are t- knights from the round table. Pendragon, which is one of Hal's, you know, mm-hmm. pseudonyms is also from a King Arthur thing. I keep calling mm-hmm. her the witch of the West because the witch of the waste is clearly the witch of the West. Right. You know, <laughs> so like, yeah, yeah there yeah. are all these little, and they're very, they're very, they're very cleverly done. They are, and she's really good at that. Like all of her writing is riddled with that stuff. She comes from a very well-educated family, um, married to a professor. She started writing because her kids were just annoying the crap out of her. And she had, like her mother-in-law was living with her and she had like three children. And she was just like, nah, I need to escape. So <laughs> and I'm like, I identify with that. <laughs> I'm familiar with that concept. Uh, I'm like, I need me time. So I'm just gonna write. Um, yeah, she, oh, this is a fun one, which I didn't know until I looked a little bit into her background for this. She went to a Quaker school when she was for, for her primary education. And and why is that interesting to you, Leah? Because I was raised as a Quaker. Well, there you go. (laughs) I saw the top, the name of her school, the friends, something academy. I was like, that's a Quaker school. (laughs) We call ourselves friends. Everyone else calls us Quakers, but you know, we're all snobby and are like, actually, we're the Society of Friends. The Society of Friends. We were friends before Facebook made it cool to be friends with people you don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Quakers, exactly. the original hipsters. The original hipsters. Oh, yeah. I mean, and just like on Facebook, you go to a thing, you stand up, you say something. Maybe <laughs> people respond. Maybe they don't. <laughs> Everybody's in their own little place. Nobody really cares. Oh my God. Galia got to be um, one of my bridesmaids at my Quaker wedding. So she got to see a silent meeting for worship style wedding where everyone just as they feel called or led or spurred or whatever stands up and sings a song or reads a poem. Reads a poem. Or some of us prepared our poem ahead of time because we knew (laughs) what was going to (laughs) happen. It was not off the cuff. Unlike the poem I wrote you this morning. (laughs) Yes. Yes, I warned everyone ahead of time. This is not a fast wedding ceremony. You probably don't want to bring your three-year-old. <laughs> Especially since there's like a canal right there for your three-year-old to fall in and drown. Yes, so, it was outside. Yeah. And most of us were barefoot. Yes, I was barefoot. It was awesome. It was an awesome wedding. 
anyway anyways back to Hal real fast I also okay there's a thing that happens in the movie that I actually really liked but I don't think because there were some really good lines like I said it was like bonk bonk on the head these really great lines it didn't really have the stuff to hold it up but I liked the line so you could totally have taken those lines kind of and been like these are really good lines one of them is like this idea so Hal's out there trying to stop this war by himself and in the movie, it's made very clear that there's like these other magicians out there fighting this war and being bad and whatever. And he never says it. But the implication is that Howl is like, I'm going to stop this war by myself because I'm a good guy with magic and they're bad guys with magic. And because I'm a good guy with magic, I will win. And it is a dangerous thing and it doesn't work. It is not what stops the Mm -hmm. war. It is not helpful actually at all. He ends up hurting himself. He ends up hurting other people. And it's not really made super clear that he learned anything from that. But I'm sitting over here in the world of 2021 where we have a lot of good guys with guns who think they're going to save the world. And I'm like, okay, Miyazaki, like I could, because I know that there's a thing in Japanese culture about wars and like how wars are really bad. And we've got the whole background of what Godzilla is really a lesson about and stuff. And so like, maybe that just, but I don't think that translates into the American audience of what was actually going on with how, which is really disappointing. But one of the other little quotes that I liked at one point, Hal says, there's no point in living if I can't be beautiful. And which, okay, I've already talked about then Sophie gets all on. I've never been beautiful, which whatever girl, like I feel you, but also shut up. But Mm -hmm. what I like was that it's not seen at like, he says that and she's like, oh my God, he's throwing a tantrum. Like it's not actually held up as reality, which is you know really good. Um, And then what does he do though? He makes himself really ugly by covering himself with slime. So I was like, well, that's like, like defeating the purpose. You're like, I want to be beautiful. I'm going to cover myself with slime. And then let's see here. There was another really good line. Um, How is selfish? He doesn't have a heart. He could turn into the witch is made very clear in the movie that if he continues like trying to solve all the things and be all the things like he could, you know, lose himself in the darkness. And I thought that was like kind of cool. Yeah. Oh, I like. Okay, this is a scene I really liked in the movie. I like them working as a team to get the plane out of the castle. Yeah. The plane crashed. They had to really work as a team. The scarecrow got involved. They're like pulling on it and everything. Um, and Sophie taking care of the witch. I kind of liked that. And that's the line that I said before, which she says, everyone in this family has problems. And I really liked that. I, I Again, I don't think it was really shown as well in the movie, but I really liked the concept of that because we talk about that in my family all the time. You know, everybody has a problem. You know, nobody's perfect. Somebody's got anxiety. Somebody has IBS. Somebody has, you know, low vision. Somebody has five different things. Somebody has epilepsy. Like we all have a thing. And part of being a family is taking care of one another and accepting each other for what they are. So I really like that. There yes. was some really good stuff. I found I was both disappointed in the movie and the narrative that it chose to go with in general, but also that there were very specific scenes in the book that I thought would have been so fun mm-hmm. to see in, in, in a Studio Ghibli style. I thought that the scene where Howl, where she, she makes Howl's suit huge, like they, they misjudge how much powder to put on it to restore it to the correct size and it just overtakes like the entire house it's just voluminous everywhere I thought that would have been hilarious to watch in Ghibli style that seems like it would lend itself so well to cartoony right yeah 
And there were a couple scenes that they did include that I just thought they biffed. Like the, the slime scene, right? In the book, the whole house is filled with slime. I mean, slime upon slime. She's sweeping it out. It's leaving a trail of slime like a snail behind the castle. How funny could that have been? They didn't go over the top enough. It should have been like just, and they could have. That's, that's so easy. It's that, Studio Ghibli was made to do those kinds of scenes. Ooze upon ooze upon ooze, just going on and on endlessly. And they could have been sweeping it desperately out of the house. It would have been hilarious to do it that way. And instead it was like, just a bit of slime. Well, he, he was slimed and then she put him in the bathtub and he, yeah. he oozed some slime. He lost his undies along the way. Right. Also the way. him running around in just his undies being like, my hair was like the most anime thing thing and i was like mm. mm-hmm. i also thought the flower garden scene was way underdone like yes we have these beautiful drifts of flowers but in the book it's like a hot house it's got hot springs and lush orchids and just and it, it should have been tall it should have been her walking through yeah. like the, there's a scene in Spirited Away, another Miyazaki film, where they, she's going through like the rhododendrons or something. And I mean, that's more like what I pictured it, not quite as closed in, but that like rows upon rows and fields and bushes and, the, you know, like everywhere you look is another beautiful exotic flower. And we missed the part that like, she'd expressed like all she'd said is we should open a flower shop yeah he was like what are we gonna do and she just like picks something at random she's like i don't know flowers and then he's like boom she says she wants a cute like a nice house and he gets her like a a decaying mansion and then she goes out and joseph's just like he could have at least fixed it up and the next time she turns around he's magically fixed the whole thing like right like he is throwing so much magic at this girl that he likes to try to get her attention and she's just like he's a show off and he's and he's so fickle and he deserved because she's not going to be swayed by the flower garden and him fixing the house she's going to be swayed by him standing up and being responsible and coming to her aid and coming, without yes poofing first yeah and and facing his cowardness because that was a major theme was like he was afraid of things and so part of his whole thing in the book was to avoid stuff it is a thing where we have to at some point as grown-ups eventually deal with our stuff and stop running and face the things and i loved how it was done in the book it was done extremely well okay i think we've we've lambasted it probably to the point where we we have but But before we do our final sum ups, which (laughs) spoiler alert, I think you all know where we land. But before we get there, I do have I do have Star Trek trivia. I know. I know. Right. You're like, what? I found (laughs) this YouTube series where they take a preview of a movie, but then they put the audio of a different movie's trailer on top of it. And there's one for this. Okay, okay, it is. Howl's Moving Castle visuals, but the audio is Star Trek Into Darkness. No. Are you linking? Yes, that that is on the show. It is 
so good, you guys. It's so funny. Oh my, and it works so well. Okay. Also, there is one overlapping thing of, 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 of cast. Okay. So Jean Simmons, okay, who was, is a British actress. She was the retired yes. Rear Admiral Nora Sadie in the Star Trek Next Generation episode, The Drumhead, which is a very important episode. Really, it's like a, a, a perfect Picard episode. It's all about standing up for what's right, all of these things. And Jean Simmons was the voice of old Sophie. When old Sophie was like, rah, 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 that was Jean Simmons, who was also in Star Trek Next Generation. So there we go. Continuing the trend of having amazing Star Trek trivia in this in this podcast mm-hmm. that's totally not a Star Trek podcast. It's fine. It's fine. Okay. Now I think we're ready to sum up here. So Leah, was this book, <laughs> I know your answer. Was this book worth your time? Was this movie worth your time? <laughs> Tell me how you really feel. I mean, the book for sure. She is one of those few writers that I would recommend to pretty much everyone. Like I, I fangirl over Jones pretty hard. So I'm like, read Diana Wynne Jones. I will tell you which of her books to read if you tell me your interest, but there is something out there that you would like of hers. And she's so good. And this book in particular, I, I love it. I love the message for young girls. If you have girls in like the nine to 15 year old range, you know, that like fantasy stuff. I mean, it's, I, I'd give it for that to them for, for Christmas any day. Um, the sequel is also good. So I was going to um, ask you because, um, it was cheaper for me to buy the trilogy. So I always tell people about Howl's Moving Castle. I'm like, okay, so Howl's Moving Castle, the movie is based on Howl's Moving Castle, the book loosely. Castle in the Sky by Studio Ghibli is not based on Castle in the Air, which is the sequel to Howl's Moving Castle, the book. There you go. So don't think there is any kind of connection with that. Um, it is just funny. The, the movie, I'm going to give you very specific niche people that I would recommend it to. You like anime? You like Studio Ghibli works? You're probably gonna like Howl's Moving Castle, the movie. Watch it before you read the book so you don't do what we did <laughs> and spend the entire movie crying about the scenes not being right and them diverging at about the 40 minute mark off into like, a, I mean, they basically made like a U-turn or something. They went off the grid as far as the book goes. It's just been so, so different. Me as just an anime fan, I have a hard time figuring out whether I would really like it. I don't, I don't think it would be one of my favorites. I think I'd be like, yeah. That's good. That's fine. It was like a B plus for me. So anime people, I think Howl's Moving Castle is a B plus Studio Ghibli film specifically. And eh, if you have kids, I don't really think it's a kids movie. Do you think it's a kids movie? I mean, I'm not, my kids watched it with me and they thought it was fine, but it's also, I I don't think they're ever going to be like, I want to watch that movie, Castle movie again. They loved Castle Calcifer is like all they got out of that movie. Once we finally got Rowan to stop being like, why is that happening? That isn't in the book because I also made the mistake of reading it out loud to Rowan. So, (laughs) but yeah, it's, I think the movie would be worth it for very specific people who like that type of 
thing. So if what you've heard from us, you're like, yeah, you know what that movie, what they're saying about that movie, that's actually my thing. You're going to like it and it's not going to be a waste of your time. But for most people, I think, I think most folks would find it a waste of their time. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's basically where I landed too. I loved this book, loved this book. I am kind of scared to read more because I loved this book so much, but I, I did, I really loved it. Yeah. And my daughter started reading it and she's into it too. I had to steal it back from her so that I could finish it. And, and I know she'll want to, she'll want to finish it. So that's, that's great. Right. And I loved it. It's just, can't say enough good things about the book. As for the movie, besides the animation stuff, again, trying to not think about it in terms of like, I just personally am not a huge anime fan. The characters I didn't like. So like it, and it's not just that they watered down Sophie and took away her magical abilities. It's that she wasn't a very likable character. The narrative issues are so apparent at the very beginning of the movie, when she gets turned into an old lady and then she leaves town, she doesn't tell us why she left town or where she's going. Somebody's like, oh, she's blah, blah, blah to go find her sister. But we've never been told actually in the movie that she has a sister. So like, it doesn't make any sense. It's just the whole movie. And then, and then it goes downhill from there. Yes, the animation is, is really beautiful parts of it. Yes, it is a visual feast, but it is just not well done. And I, and I hate having to say that, but it, it is true. Studio Ghibli is too big, well-funded, and well-known to put out a movie that relying just on how attractive it is, yeah. just on its visual appeal. You all, they need to be judged on the actual narrative and storytelling ability and characterization. And those things were lacking. I think that's fair. Yeah. And I mean, Roger Ebert also called it a disappointment. So I felt, I felt justified. I was like, thank, thank you, Roger. And, and he, did not read the book. So this is not Roger Ebert doing what we did, which was, you know, but he was like, it's just, it's just disappointing. And he has a really good quote. Sophie, like the plot creeps through. <laughs> Sophie, you old or young, never quite seems to understand and inhabit this world. Says it's a parade of weird characters comes on stage to do their turns. Sophie is more witness than heroine. The underlying plot grows murky. Amazingly for a Mizaki film, we grow impatient at spectacle without meaning. And I was like, that's it. It's spectacle without meaning. This is why Roger Ebert was the bomb, right? Like that's exactly what we've been searching for the whole time. And it, and it's, and it's so true. And I just, it is sad. It's disappointing. That is what it is. So I would say, read this book, totally read this book, read this book. If you like fantasy, sci-fi, speculative fiction, YA, or just because it's here, because it's super worth it. And it doesn't take very long to read. The movie is fucking an hour and 59 minutes long. It is way too it's long to be long. this bad. Okay. I could have maybe been like, yeah, you know, it wasn't great, but it was only an hour and 20 minutes. You guys, it was two hours of my life. And it, in like, especially the last 40 minutes of it just dragged and made no sense. So Horribly. I would say, I, I mean, unless you're like, I have to watch all the Mizaki films in order to be complete in my life. I would literally say, just skip it, read the book and, and like move on with your day seriously. And I, you know, that's a, it's a cardinal sin as, as somebody who does what I do this podcast to be so enamored with a book that you can't see straight. And I, I think that that is definitely an issue but also, like I said, Roger Ebert didn't read this book. <laughs> like, and he says the same thing I did. So I feel a little bit more justified in it. 
so there you go. That is, that is my take. Mm -hmm. Leah, are you going to come back and talk to me about Enola Holmes volume two? Oh, I would love to. Because they're making it. (laughs) It comes out next year. (laughs) I don't know which of the books. There's like six books and they certainly took a lot of liberties in the first one. So yeah. So who knows where, what direction they're going to go. I know. I'm, I'm, I'm excited. And I was like, immediately thought of you. Okay, great. And for those of you listening, yes, Leah was here for Enola Holmes. She was here for Jurassic Park. She was here real recently for interview with a vampire, vampire. the vampire, (laughs) not a vampire. (laughs) Um, so yeah, for sure. Check out those past episodes. And again, Leah, it is always such a delight to talk to you. It really is. I really enjoy this. It's I, Anytime you want me back. Yes. And now that you've proved your worth by picking such a good book, I might let you pick something else in the future. We'll see. <laughs> awesome. Okay. So we've already had our Thanksgiving dinner. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. And you know what happens in just a couple of days, Leah? My birthday. <laughs> That's what happens in a couple of days. So listeners, if you want to do something nice for me on my birthday, tell your friends to listen to this podcast, (laughs) like, and share us on social media, leave us a review and all the places that you listen. That would be the best birthday gift of all. Okay. And by every little girl in your life, how was moving castle? Yeah, man, for sure. This should be on everybody. Boys too. Boys and can enjoy it also. And she has a lot of books with boy main characters because she had three sons. So nice. It's good regardless of gender regardless of gender. Love it. Love it. Okay. Well, thank you for having me on. Yes. So fun. Always, always fun. Very cool. Thanks, Leah. Happy birthday. We're like done with this now, but do you know what we're doing for the one that'll come after this episode? Jennifer and I are doing the Grinch. Oh, fantastic. We're doing the original animated George C. Scott and then the first Jim Carrey Grinch, along with obviously the Dr. Seuss book. Nice. So that'll be a little bit different. And then this cracks me up. Our other December. (laughs) I was like, holiday movies that you don't realize are holiday movies. That was my Google search that based on books. Okay. So like holiday movies, but you don't realize are holiday movies that are based on books. Okay. Eyes wide shut. No. <laughs> yes. It is based on a short German story. <laughs> so yeah. I had to buy it. I was like, Jennifer, we're doing this. <laughs> oh, I'm excited. Awesome. And then you I- have like kids, kids book or young adult book kids book eyes wide shut yes and then (laughs) and then in january or two and i'm not sure what order it'll come because it depends on recording schedules but we're doing the self-help cynthia and i are doing the self-help he's just not that into you which for some reason they made into a movie okay and then also picture of dorian gray so classics i mean we just all the genres right that's what we do on this podcast equal opportunity